Welcome to Ejil, the podcast. We are recording in the afternoon of Friday, the 12th of January. And there is much that has been going on in the world of international law at the start of 2024. This is the afternoon after we have just had the oral hearings in the provisional measure stage of the case brought by South Africa against Israel under the Genocide Convention. As it happens, today is also the anniversary of the entry into force of the Genocide Convention. It entered into force on the 12th of January, 1951. And with me today are our regular EGIL, the podcast hosts. I'm with Philippa Webb, Professor of International Law at King's College London. Hi, Deborah. And Marco Milanovic, who is a Professor of International Law at the University of Reading. Hi. And we are joined today by Mike Becker, who is Assistant Professor of International Human Rights Law at Trinity College, Dublin. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Great to be back with you. Thanks for coming back onto EGIL, the podcast. So as I said, there is a lot that's going on in the world of international law. And in this episode, we intend to cover three issues. First of all, we will start with a discussion of the proceedings brought by South Africa against Israel under the Genocide Convention. And then we will, in a second part, reflect more generally on the role of international tribunals today and the increase in the use of international tribunals. And then finally, this morning, there was breaking news, or rather last night, that the United States and the United Kingdom had used force on the territory of Yemen against the Houthi group in response to attacks that has been going on in the Red Sea on maritime traffic. And we will be talking about some of the legal issues that are raised by that incident. So, first of all, let's talk about the case at the ICJ. Can I turn to you, Mike, just to give us the background to those proceedings? So, as I'm sure most uh, listeners of the podcast know, uh, the world uh, turned upside down in, in Israel in, on October 7th when we saw Hamas uh, enter into uh, Israel and carry out uh, various atrocities. And since then, Israel has responded uh, using force in Gaza. That has led to South Africa bringing this case under the Genocide Convention against Israel. The case was uh, filed with the ICJ at the end of December. And South Africa's basic claims are that uh, Israel is directly perpetrating acts of genocide, has failed to prevent genocide, and has failed to prevent or punish public incitement to genocide. So those are the basic claims that will be decided on the merits of that case. But South Africa also introduced a request for provisional measures, and that is what this week's hearing was concerned with. This is not the first case that has been brought to the ICJ under the Genocide Convention, and also not the first one relating to provisional measures. Philippa, can you tell us a little bit about what the court has done in previous cases? Yes, yeah, so it's an unfortunate reality of our 
our world that the genocide convention has been invoked before the court fairly regularly, uh, including in um, the advisory opinion back in 1951. But there's been three contentious cases in which the genocide convention has been invoked uh, in uh, accompanying a request for provisional measures. Bosnia, Serbia in 1993, Gambia, Myanmar in 2020, and Ukraine, Russia in 2022. And in each of those cases, the court did grant provisional measures, not the measures uh, necessarily requested by um, the applicant state, but it did grant them. So let's take a step back and maybe just talk about, um, just very briefly, actually, what provisional measures means and under what conditions the court will exercise the power to indicate those provisional measures. So the requirements for provisional measures are fortunately pretty clear through the jurisprudence of the court. And we heard uh, about the five requirements regularly over the last couple of days in the South Africa-Israel hearing. The first is that there should be prima facie jurisdiction. So jurisdiction on a um, first glance basis. Uh, The second is that there should be a link between the measures requested and the rights underlying the main claim. The third is that the rights claimed should be plausible. Fourth, there must be a risk of irreparable prejudice that is capable of occurring before the final determination of the dispute. And in this case, as with most ICJ cases, we're looking at a timeline of three to four, maybe five years before a final determination on the merits. And then the final requirement is that there should be urgency. So these are orders that the court issues typically well in advance of the final determination and where the court, if it grants the order, is basically telling one of the parties to do or not to do something until the court is able to to decide on the merits. Marco, maybe I can come to you next. Those conditions that Philippa has just outlined, which of those conditions is most at issue in these proceedings? Well, it's really a combination of prima facie jurisdiction, ratione materia, subject matter jurisdiction, and plausibility. I mean, because the two are kind of interlinked. The core question in this case is whether what Israel has done in Gaza killing more than 20,000 people and so on, whether it's plausibly genocide or not. Because as soon as it's not genocide, as as soon as it's just, quote unquote, war crimes or crimes against humanity, the court has no jurisdiction. The court's jurisdiction is confined solely to genocide because the basis of the jurisdiction is Article 9, the compromissory clause in the Genocide Convention. So that's really the, the trickiest bit here, is what Israel has done genocide. Now, that depends on the definition of genocide, which, I mean, most international lawyers are familiar with, but actually there's a huge disconnect between the public perception of the word and its actual definition. And even international lawyers don't really appreciate how narrowly that crime has been interpreted in international jurisprudence. Essentially, the sole defining characteristic of the crime is this specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a protected group, national, ethnic, religious, racial, as such. So it is the intent of the perpetrator that is the defining characteristic of the crime. So even though Israel killed 20,000 people, 
you know, the, the killing of those 20,000 people could be legal, you know, it could be fully compliant with IHL, it could be illegal, war crimes under IHL, it could be crimes against humanity, or it could be genocide, if you can prove that genocidal intent. And every other criterion in this case, like if you assume, you know, that all of these acts are continuing, urgency, reparable harm, etc., etc., they're easy to make out. It is this one, the existence of genocidal intent that one needs to prove, that South Africa needed to prove to some level of plausibility. The difficulty, of course, here is that the court is going to reserve the question of whether genocide has actually occurred until later on. It's not going to be able to decide that in the next couple of weeks. So what does the court actually have to decide on before it can make up its mind as to whether it will issue the provisional measures on this difficult question, Marco, that you've been talking about. On so the- it's, it's, it's kind of unclear, actually, right? So the, the court has never really explained itself properly when dealing with these issues. Um, you know, in, on the merits, it's clear what the court has to do. The court has said that it will make a finding that there's genocide only if the inference of genocidal intent is the only possible explanation. Yeah. So if you can explain horribly atrocities by saying they're crimes against humanity or, you know, or war crimes, the court will not infer genocidal intent on the merits. I'm talking about the merits. Yeah. And this is, in fact, what happened in the Bosnian case, in the Croatian case. In the Bosnian case, only one, again, I say only with quotation marks, only one event in the Bosnian conflict, it was the Srebrenica massacre, was qualified both by the International Tribunal for Yugoslavia and by the ICJ as genocide. Everything else was other crimes and therefore not within the ICJ's jurisdiction. In the Croatian case, nothing was qualified as genocide. In Gambia, Myanmar, we're going to see what the court will do. Now, the interesting case here, the one that we haven't mentioned so far, but actually that Israel will probably say is the closest parallel, are the so-called legality of the use of force cases. So when, and I was uh, an unwilling participant, as it were, you know, in 1999, when NATO bombed Serbia, so Serbia sued some of these NATO countries, and it used the only tool it had, which was Article 9 of the Genocide Convention. And what it needed was provisional measures. And in the provisional measures order, the court just said, very laconically, with no explanation, really, we don't think there's genocidal intent here, go away. This is a use at vellum issue not our jurisdiction. And so what Israel's argument basically is, this is all IHL, Yusad Bellum, whatever, it's not genocide, you cannot infer genocide. Okay, I'm mean, getting a little bit uh, technical, but I think it gets to the heart of the, the problem that the court faces and coming to you, Mike, is this understanding of plausibility. So Marco says that's what the court needs to decide. So as as Philip has set out, the court has said, look, there's got to be plausibility of rights. What do, exactly does that mean? Does that mean that the right has to exist? Or does it mean that it has to be plausible to consider that the right is being violated in this case? And how does the court approach it? So, yeah, so the, the court continues to use this language of plausibility of, of rights, but it doesn't really make sense because plausibility of rights seems to just collapse back into that question of prima facie jurisdiction. And so when the court refers to plausibility of rights, I really understand this to mean the plausibility of the claims. 
And so they are looking for, is there some uh, basic amount of evidence or not manifestly unfounded legal argument here that could support uh, a claim of genocide? And what was really interesting to, to build off of what Marco said, what was interesting in the hearing today is that we see some uh, disagreement between the parties about just how much evidence of genocidal intent has to be put in front of the court at this stage. And this echoes, in fact, what we saw in the uh, provisional measures hearing in the Myanmar case a couple of years ago. Uh, so Israel is suggesting that um, South Africa really needs to meet that standard of no other inference could be drawn from the evidence already in front of the court at this very provisional stage. And South Africa's position, and I think this is the correct position, is that no, we merely need to show that we have uh, put forward some evidence that could at least plausibly point towards a conclusion of genocidal intent at the end of the day. And there, we're not only talking about that kind of on the ground pattern of conduct evidence that Marco's referring to, 20, 000, more than 20,000 people killed, all this destruction of uh, homes, hospitals, infrastructure. But South Africa has paired that with what isn't circumstantial or contextual evidence, but this direct evidence or what's portrayed as direct evidence of genocidal intent. These are all these statements from high-ranking Israeli officials that have at least been put forward as suggesting uh, genocidal intent directly. And so I think that that will meet that plausibility test for the court. Can I broaden it out, um, Mike, and Marco as well, to how you think the pleadings have gone? Um, so, Mike, it sounds from what you've said that South Africa has uh, set the right standard and apparently met that standard. But overall, what would your prediction be for what the court is going to do in this case? And we know they're going to do it quickly because the bench is somewhat changing in early February. So we should expect um, their decision within the next couple of weeks. Right. So my take on this is that South Africa has was able to do in, in its application and in the hearing what it needs to do for provisional measures. And as we've talked about, this is an entirely separate question from the standard that South Africa will have to meet on the merits. This is a much lower standard. Uh, and South Africa did that not only by emphasizing the, the plausibility point, but really uh, focusing in on the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. So that goes to the risk of irreparable harm and the urgency prongs of the provisional measures test. South Africa's team was very strong on that, I thought. Um, Israel uh, came back. We haven't talked about what measures South Africa has actually requested here. The lead measure that South Africa has requested is an order directing Israel to immediately suspend military operations. I've always thought that that is likely farther than the court would be willing to go. And I think what Israel um, was very effective at in its presentation today was pointing out why uh, that's not a feasible uh, solution here, that Israel faces a continuing and very real security threat from Hamas, and that it wouldn't be appropriate for the court to uh, essentially direct Israel and Israel alone to stand down. So to me, the question is not really whether provisional measures are going to be indicated. I think that will happen. But what exactly those provisional measures will, will be? What will the content of those measures look like? So on that issue, Mike, and, and Marco as well, you can also come in, the, the question of what measures, the first measure that South Africa requests is the cessation of the operations. 
Israel says, as you've just been pointing out, Mike, this will interfere with the exercise of our right of self-defense. So one question that arises is, is this just a matter of like appropriateness, whether it's appropriate or not, or is it really a question of competence that the court just doesn't have the competence to stop a state from exercising its right of self-defense? So can I backtrack a teeny tiny bit? Um, and, and first, I completely agree with Mike's assessment. Um, I am almost certain the court will indicate provisional measures and the issue is which ones. And really the big, the big question is whether they will issue this kind of order to stop uh, Israel from using force at all. Now, they did this only once. They did this in the Ukraine-Russia case. They did not do it in any of the other cases before. Yeah. So even in the cases that really, really focused on provisional measures, the request was something else. So, for example, in the Bosnian case, the core reason why Bosnia even lodged the, the application with the court is because they wanted the court to suspend the arms embargo that the Security Council had imposed on Bosnia, which made it impossible for them to buy weapons. Yeah. And it like the whole idea of stopping the hostilities completely was just not on the cards. In Ukraine v. Russia, the court did tell Russia, just stop the intervention fully. But the case was different because Ukraine's case is not about Russia committing genocide in Ukraine. And therefore, Russia must stop doing that. Ukraine's case is you invaded us on the false pretext that we committed genocide against our own people. Your whole use of force is predicated on that point, on a false allegation of genocide, and that's our right. We claim we have a right not to be invaded by you on that type of false allegation. And the court used that. So if you look at the provisional measures order in Ukraine versus Russia, the court says the right that's plausible is Ukraine's right not to be subject to use of force on the basis of a false claim of genocide. And that's why the court did what it did. It's interesting when you compare what Ukraine asked for in that provisional measures, Mm. they tied the suspension of military- To genocide. To the genocide convention. Mm. What the court came out with- No genocide. Yes, an order just the suspension of military operations. And they did that to avoid loopholes. They did that to avoid allowing Russia the space to argue ah, well, this is, we're not doing force for for the purpose of genocide prevention. We're just doing it for for the purpose of self-defense. Yeah. So that's why the court issued that very blanket order in Ukraine versus Russia. I very much doubt they will do that here. Dapo, on your point, it's a lovely intellectual conceptual point. We had a blog post recently on it. You can write a book about it. I am 100% certain the court will not touch this question directly. They will say something very brief and ambiguous about it. They are usually very brief and very summary in their reasoning in these types of orders. I think they will mention, or you know, there will probably be a majority of judges that will say we're not going to order Israel to to use uh, to stop using force altogether. And some of this kind of stuff about Hamas committing the attack, Israel really using force, at least plausibly for legitimate purposes, will factor into that. How exactly conceptually is, I think, less of an issue. 
I think they will simply not give the order that South Africa wanted. So let's talk about other things that South Africa requested and and look at whether the court might order those things. So one of the things that is um, sort of forefront in the case is not just the actual killings that result directly from Israel's military operations, but also the humanitarian condition in in Gaza, which on any account is is terrible, and issues regarding humanitarian aid. So, Mike, what's your take on the extent to which the court might issue provisional measures which somehow direct Israel to do or not do certain things on this question of facilitating humanitarian aid? I think it's uh, pretty likely that the court will uh, include some measure focused on that. Uh, the, The more interesting question, I suppose, is how specific or general it might be. Will it simply be directing Israel not to impede the delivery of humanitarian aid, or will it actually create a kind of affirmative obligation to facilitate uh, the, the delivery of humanitarian aid. This was an interesting issue in the hearings uh, because Israel's uh, position in the hearing today was we are already doing everything that we can. Uh, the problem with getting humanitarian aid into Gaza isn't us, it's Hamas. Uh, but they were essentially asking the court to trust us. We, you know, we're doing everything we can. And they styled it really as a kind of unilateral undertaking to say there's no need for provisional measures here because we're already doing what you would otherwise ask us to do. But South Africa anticipated that the day before and preemptively said, uh, Israel may say exactly that. And uh, you, the court, uh, shouldn't simply accept their unilateral undertaking. You should impose a measure here to hold them to that promise, if not to ask them to do more. But in general, in these types of provisional measures, the court has, has I think, shied away from you know, giving long enumerated lists of things that states either should do or must do or, or must not do. And so it might be something uh, of a more general formulation. Can I make a quick point? Israel finds itself in this position because its own leaders were stupid enough to say various things that the leaders of other countries maybe think but don't say. If there were no statements of the kind that are on the record, this case would end up like the legality of the use of force cases that Serbia brought, even with the 20,000 people dead. Well, on that, Marco, let's not lose sight of the fact that South Africa is not just um, raising the commission of genocide, but also the direct and public insight. Correct. Correct. And there's loads of that. Like if you look at the extreme right wing of the political spectrum in Israel, there's loads of that. And, and it's only like a, the day before the hearings that the Israeli attorney general issued out that statement saying, ah, be aware, we might prosecute people criminally for incitement. Yeah. So it's quite clear that Israeli leaders, legally speaking, brought their country to the position which they're now in, that they will lose at least in some respect, this hearing on provisional measures. The same goes for the humanitarian assistance point. When you had Israeli officials expressly say that they're denying access to supplies to Gaza in order to coerce Hamas to release the hostages, yeah, in a way that is like completely against the rules of IHL and, and other rules of international law, why would the ICJ trust them now? There's no way the ICJ will say, ah, we're going to believe your unilateral undertaking. They will order something. Now, what exactly they will order, as Mike said, 
that remains to be seen. And isn't it interesting that, you know, we always hear about, well, at the end of the day, this ICJ decision isn't going to be enforceable or what impact is this going to have? But I think both of these examples that you just gave, Marco, the fact that we have this announcement 36 hours before the hearing that oh, now people are going to be investigated or prosecuted for incitement or now we are stepping up humanitarian assistance. You know, this is a direct result, or at least it certainly looks like a direct result of the fact of the case being brought. And so this is another way to think about you know, what what impact does international litigation have? It's not always the end result, but simply the fact of this kind of scrutiny being being put on a particular state actor. Okay, um, let's fast forward and look beyond the provisional measures order then. I mean, it's quite conceivable that there'll be a jurisdictional phase. I thought I'd detected a hint in the Israeli arguments today that they will challenge jurisdiction. That won't be surprising. But let's look beyond that and actually look to the merits um, if the court actually does get there. Any predictions? This is several years on. Any predictions as to whether South Africa can win, win this case? One actually doesn't need a crystal ball to make predictions here. The predictions are actually quite easy because we know what the facts are. We know what kind of court it is. We know what it did in very similar cases before. So the prediction is simply this, just like I am virtually certain that South Africa will win, quote unquote, on provisional measures and get some kind of order, I am in the same way virtually certain that South Africa will lose on the merits. Because remember, the standard the court set on the merits is that genocidal intent has to be the only possible inference. And we will have UN reports and fact-finding missions and God knows what else in the meantime to fill in factual gaps and evidentiary gaps that we have now. But unless some major revelation comes through, the court will ultimately say it is a plausible explanation that Israel was committing war crimes or crimes against humanity or whatever other violation of international law, but that its leaders did not possess genocidal intent and therefore there is no genocide, the same outcome that happened in Bosnia other than Srebrenica and in Croatia. The problem with that, though, is that in the time that will happen, people will start devaluing all of the other crimes. That's what happens in all of these situations. So when the court delivered its Bosnian judgment, a Bosnian victim in front of the court tore the judgment into pieces, yeah? They, they thought that a finding that it's just crimes against humanity somehow violated all of their rights and interests. And I, I am very sorry to say this, but I am sure that Palestinians and Palestinian activists will engage with Israelis in this competitive victimhood where everything will be about genocide. And then when ultimately the court says there was no genocide, Israel will say, well, that's a complete exoneration. And Palestinians will say, well, that's a complete failure of international justice, when in fact the court would only be doing its job because it does not have jurisdiction over war crimes against, crimes against humanity. So that's what will ultimately happen in this case, God knows how many years from now. Mike, any thoughts from you as to predictions? Uh, I, well, so I'd agree with Marco that this standard of genocidal intent has been set so high that it uh, makes this extremely challenging for South Africa. So I wouldn't be surprised if we get the outcome that Marco is absolutely certain will arrive at. But I'd say two things. One is that the case itself, you know, South Africa has, as much as in any of these other uh, genocide convention cases, based its theory of genocidal intent 
on these patterns of uh, what more clearly seem to look like violations of international humanitarian law and international human rights law. And so the case itself, the process of getting to that outcome is going to, even though the court doesn't have jurisdiction over international humanitarian law here, that, that's what the case is going to be largely about. And so to the extent that the case uh, requires Israel to try to explain how it is complying with IHL, which is what it continues to say, I think there's real value there. The other thing I would just keep in mind is that there's another case that's well ahead of this case on the schedule. That's the Gambia versus Myanmar. And there are a lot of similarities between these two cases. And so how the court approaches these key questions of interpretation of the Genocide Convention, especially will the court in any way revisit its approach to genocidal intent in that case? Well, however the court does it there, that's going to loom very large for how it approaches those same issues here. The points that you're making, Mike, they kind of raise questions about just the role of international litigation and the role of, of international tribunals, right? Um, and, you know, one can sort of look at what's going on in the world, the situations we've been talking about, whether it's the situation in of the Rohingya, whether it's what's going on in Ukraine, now what's going on in Gaza, international law relevant to all of these things. And in all of these places, we see a kind of depressing picture. And so one might say, you know, what good is international law when all of these things and, uh, are, are going on? But at the same time, this particular case, the South Africa-Israel case, then shows another side. It's the litigation side, the rise of international tribunals and the role that states seem to feel that international tribunals should play in, in all of this. And we're really actually in a very, very unusual situation, um, which is almost the flip side of the negativity. The unusual situation being states are rushing now to use internet. They literally are rushing to use international tribunals for all sorts of things. Something I think we would never have imagined you know, 10, 20 years, years ago. If one looks at the number of one cases before the ICJ, it's probably the highest that it has ever been. More significant, if you look at the number of states that are involved in one way or another in cases before the ICJ and other international tribunals, it really is unbelievable. Over 100 states today are involved in one way or another in a case at the ICJ, either as parties to a contentious case, intervening in proceedings, or being involved in advisory opinions. So the Palestine advisory opinion, which is the next one the court is going to hear, 57 states submitted written pleadings. And presumably, almost as many states will appear in the oral hearings just in February. And so the- 10, 10 states that didn't submit written statements um, have indicated that they will participate in the oral hearings. Yeah. So the question is actually broadening out from South Africa, Israel, the question we were asking, what's the value? Why is this happening? Why are states actually using international tribunals in this way, which is just unprecedented in, mm-hmm. in, international, in international law? Who should I come to first on, <laughs> on that, Philippa? <laughs> So I think this is in lockstep with another trend that we're seeing in the use of 
the ICJ, but also it lost the Inter-American Court, um, possibly the African Court as well, which is that it's no longer bilateral disputes between states about a treaty breach or a dispute over a border. Those are still there. But now we're seeing disputes about existential risks such as climate change or about uh, situations going beyond the classic dispute um, that affect uh, multiple states uh, and also beyond that civil society and individuals coming to these courts. I was just looking through the 22 uh, cases that currently on the docket of the ICJ and these are front pa- most of them are front page news. We have obviously the South Africa Israel case. We have next month the advisory opinion on the legal consequences um, arising from the policies and practices of Israel in the occupied Palestinian territory. We have the obligations of states in respect of climate change advisory opinion. But then we have these cases where a state or states have invoked the responsibility of another state, not for something that directly affects them, but for rights that are seen as uh, important to the international community as a whole. So we have Canada and the Netherlands bringing a case against Syria under the Torture Convention. We have Gambia against um, Myanmar, as Mike has mentioned, uh, under the Genocide Convention. And then even in cases that on their surface might seem quite technical, Guyana and Venezuela, arbitral award of 1899, (laughs) that is a case where we have a disturbing buildup of troops and the potential of the use of force on that border. So uh, the importance of the cases has increased, and I think that has increased the interest in having a say. Yeah. And as you say, uh, Philip, it's not just at the International Court of, of Justice. So European Court of Human Rights, Ukraine, Russia, and you mentioned the African Court of Human Rights, interestingly, just in the last few months, it has its first interstate case in the African Court of Human and People's Rights, a case brought by Rwanda against, uh, sorry, a case brought by the DRC against Rwanda in relation to the kind of longstanding and ongoing um, conflict in that region. So again, an, a case of huge importance in in that um, in that region. One of the questions I think that also arises here, and maybe I can come to you uh, for this, Mike, is this question of um, interventions. We saw a lot of interventions in Ukraine, Russia, Gambia, Myanmar. Why do you think that is happening, and are we likely to see more interventions? Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, new phenomenon that we're, we're seeing where uh, for most of the ICJ's history intervention, whether under Article 62 or Article 63, has been very rare. Uh, just to be clear, Article 63 intervention is when the dispute relates to a, a multilateral treaty. Um, and so now we have a number of interveners in Mya- uh, the Myanmar case and an unprecedented massive number of interveners in Ukraine versus Russia. Um, and we already have states now kind of coming out of the woodwork and saying they're planning to intervene in South Africa versus Israel. Uh, I, probably part of the explanation for that is not so different from the explana- explanation that underlies why are states bringing these kind of community interest cases in the first place, that they see that there are opportunities to uh, involve the ICJ or some other international court, um, and that they see that as 
politically useful? Is that a way to, as, as a way to advance their view of how the law should be used to uh, order society? Um, but intervene, you know, these interventions, uh, I've always been a little bit skeptical of the value of, of interventions because while it can be a, an important kind of symbolic way of showing political solidarity with one or the other state involved in, in a dispute, I don't know that it necessarily always adds tremendous legal value uh, in addition to it creating a real logistical mess for, uh, for the court, perhaps. Um, that's not to say that they can't add legal value, uh, but I'm not necessarily convinced at this point that they do. Another really interesting uh, point that I'll just make here is uh, just before we came on to, to tape this, I saw that Germany had announced they plan to intervene in South Africa versus Israel, and they have strongly said that they uh, support Israel's position of the case. That's really interesting because Germany, along with a handful of other states, previously intervened in the Gambia versus Myanmar case where they have set out their view of how the, gen uh, the Genocide Convention should be construed. And so now Germany is, to some extent, locked in to this interpretation that they've already put in front of the court. And that interpretation, in my view, uh, suggests a slightly more uh, open approach to that crucial question of genocidal intent. And so now I don't see how Germany uh, in particular can really back away from that in the South Africa case. So what you're sort of suggesting is that as you see this kind of increase in cases, once states get involved in sort of multiple cases, then there's a risk for those states actually that positions that they are taking in one case has an impact on a position that they're taking in another case. So Marco, you wrote a piece recently on, on Ejo Talk, the blog, talking about a similar dynamic at the European Court of Human Rights in the Ukraine-Russia case, Ukraine and Netherlands against Russia. Maybe you can uh, tell us a bit about that. Right. So th that's a hugely complex case that deals with many different incidents. But broadly speaking, it deals with the downing of the MH17 airliner in 2014 with instances of artillery shelling by Russian forces or pro-Russian forces in 2014. And then the totality of the armed conflict in 2022 up to September 2022, when Russia ceased to be a party to the convention. And the core outstanding question really is how the court will deal with conduct of hostilities issues. So atrocity crimes are easy. You know, so if Russian forces go into Bucha and they torture and kill, I don't know, dozens of people in Bucha, that's an easy human rights violation. The, the really difficult part of that case is what do you do with conduct of hostilities kind of scenarios? So I know artillery shelling, that tends to impact civilians of the kind we see now Israel doing in Gaza, right? That's really the, 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 the difficult, outstanding question, uh, complicated by this horribly inconsistent and unprincipled prior jurisprudence of the European court, uh, especially this, this case called Georgia-Russia number two. Anyway, so what happened? 26 member states, an unprecedented number, intervened to support Ukraine. Yeah? So they're all there signaling to the court, look at us. Ukraine is good. Russia is awful. We stand with Ukraine. But two of those states, France and the UK, actually on the most controversial issues of conduct of hostilities, they actually support Russia. Yeah? 
So the UK does not want the court to get into any of the conduct of hostilities questions. It says this is IHL, it's for the International Criminal Court, it's not for you. Why does the UK do that? Because that's what the UK wants when the UK uses force in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan. And for its own self-interest, really, the UK is on the one hand, like sort of supporting Ukraine through the intervention, but actually on the really difficult part of the case, it is supporting Ukraine's adversary. And I, I really can't think of a, a similar example in any other court in this kind of very weird way. So you have this interesting sort of dynamic which complicates the position of states. The more states get into international litigation, the more they have to think about these kinds of issues. These are the dangers. Maybe just to go back to the question of why states are doing it and the question of what the the benefits that states see for doing it or just even more kind of sociologically what's driving it. So Philippus suggested an issue around... um, community interest, states are, you know, more kind of aware somehow of these issues or more motivated. And arguably, one reason for that actually is the role that civil society is playing. So we've been talking about states, but actually there are others who are at work here. And I think you wouldn't have seen cases like Gambia, Myanmar, and you wouldn't have seen some of the other cases actually without uh, civil society. I wonder actually also whether the rise of private lawyers getting involved in this kind of litigation also changes the dynamic somehow for for states in the sense that you have sort of law firms um, that are involved, you have barristers who are who are involved, and and in one sense it, it kind of makes it easier for states to do this. You have now repeat players. Because the states themselves may not be repeat players, but their advocates sometimes, sometimes. Mm. Mike, maybe I can come come to you on on these questions as to why um, we're seeing this rise. Yeah, that last point you made, Dapo. I think that that's part of the story of the rise of uh, litigation at the European Court of Human Rights, where we had a real professionalization of of human rights specialized lawyers in the UK, in particular, in the late '90s. Uh, but anyway. Among all these different phenomena that we see, one aspect of this is the uh, is the increase in advisory opinion requests, um, and I think that's really interesting because one way to think about that would be to see advisory opinion requests as reflecting a failure of diplomacy, because advisory opinion requests aren't really your first port of call, and I think when we look at the pending advisory opinion requests at the ICJ and at other international courts. And at some of the recent advisory opinion requests too, and I'm thinking of Chagos in particular, these are all marked by situations that were really failures of diplomacy, where diplomacy has failed to resolve a situation and where states uh, didn't have other good options and so have decided to to, uh, look for uh, some recourse through the advisory procedure. So just sticking with advisory opinions for for a moment and the increase that we have seen, Philip, and maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that increase and what, what the use is of those, uh, the potential use is of those advisory opinions. I see advisory opinions these days being used in a more strategic sense in that, uh, especially in the climate change space, we're seeing 
civil society driven, but also small island state driven requests to uh, the ICJ and ITLOS asking those international courts to set out the obligations of states. What are they under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea? And in the ICJ, there's a much broader set of uh, legal principles that have been invoked. It is not at this stage about pinning responsibility uh, on particular emitters. But what I can see um, in the very near future is that uh, creative lawyers, um, public interest lawyers, will take what these advisory opinions say and bring it to domestic courts, invoking this as the standard that has been set for the obligations of states to uh, reduce marine pollution um, or to protect the marine environment in the case of ITLOS or um, the precautionary principle uh, in, in the right to a healthy environment in the ICJ, if indeed that's what comes out of these opinions. So these advisory opinions are just the first step that one can see in a global litigation strategy to hold states and possibly uh, their agents um, accountable for uh, the damage being wrought by climate change and to claim compensation for what is needed to uh, address that, including adaptation going forward. Good. So let's now pivot to something a, a bit different, which is the the use of force connected, obviously, to the war in Gaza that was done overnight by the US and the UK with support of some other countries against the, against the Houthis in Yemen, because the Houthis have for the past couple of weeks been systematically attacking shipping in the Red Sea. Now, the, a statement was issued by, by the UK and US governments that will be followed by Article 51 letters to the Security Council expressly saying that the legal basis for this use of force in Yemen is the right to self-defense, whether individual or collective. Now, this raises some interesting issues and some not so necessarily terribly interesting ones. So one particular question is whether the Houthis are the government of Yemen de facto and whether it is the state of Yemen that has conducted these attacks or rather are they a non-state actor and therefore this, there's this whole question of whether self-defense is permissible in response to armed attacks by non-state actors of the kind we have in the Hamas-Israel-Gaza situation as well. But we all know sort of all the controversies about that particular question, so let's not dwell on it. Let's look at some of the more unique, more interesting aspects of this episode. Dapo, do you want to start off? Yeah. So for me, actually, the central question in this uh, episode is the quest is the armed attack question and whether or not attacks on vessels can constitute an armed attack which generates the right of self-defense. Two kinds of vessels that you can think of. You can think of an armed attack on naval vessels, and then you can think of uh, an attack on commercial shipping. So a vessel which is just flagged, uh, flying under the flag of a particular state and has its nationality. If we start with the naval vessels, maybe that's the easier one, because if you look at um, you know, General Assembly Resolution 3314, which kind of defines aggression and which is sometimes used as indicating the armed attack standard, it talks about attacks on the, the sort of naval vessels of a state. 
And in this case, we have seen some such attacks. Though interestingly, we've seen those attacks when those naval vessels are actually acting to defend the commercial shipping. So you kind of get to a scenario where you attack the commercial shipping, the naval vessel comes to defend, and you attack the naval vessel, and that might transform it into an armed attack against the state. I think in the old platforms case, the the ICJ was willing to accept that, at least it didn't rule out that an attack on a single naval vessel constituted an armed attack. The statement that the UK issued today specifically cited actually an attack on one of its naval vessels, specifically cited that, and that may be the UK's justification. Then there's the question of what about if it's just on commercial shipping? Does that constitute an armed attack which gives a right to to self-defense? Maybe I I should turn to to Philip and see what she thinks about that, and then I, I can come back in on that. Yes. So I think that's where we have less guidance from the oil platforms case, which in other ways is pretty similar um, to what we see here. And just to take a a step back, we have had two statements released in the last 12 hours. We had the UK statement, but we also had a joint statement um, that was the UK, US, Australia, Canada, Netherlands, Bahrain and and others uh, in support of the action against the Houthi targets. And that joint statement interestingly says that the Houthis have conducted more than two dozen attacks that constitute an international challenge. Now, you can imagine the negotiations that probably um, lie behind that wording. International challenge does not trigger the right to self-defence. We see the words armed attack. Uh, used in the UK statement. So this is not definitive. We'll see what they write to the Security Council, but you can already see behind this some uh, questioning and uncertainty about where um, the standard is. So on commercial vessels, I think um, oil platforms didn't exclude the possibility that an armed attack could be made, um, constituted by uh, attacks on U.S. Oh, well, in that case, U.S. But that states flagged vessels, but they didn't find it on the facts, and they seem to be. Uh, and this is from the two thousand and three judgment. They seem to be saying what the U.S. needed to show was a specific intent of harming that particular commercial vessel, and. In that case, they said a missile fired fired from more than 100 kilometres away could not have been aimed at the specific vessel, but just some target in Kuwaiti waters. Now, you wonder to what extent was the court influenced in that case by the problems with proving attribution to Iran of uh, the origin of those missiles. But it does seem, we go back to what we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, the importance of intent in international litigation. Yeah. So I think actually this incident is going to raise a problem with how the court dealt with the old platforms case. So it's conceivable that you can say armed attack on commercial shipping is not an armed attack because it's not against the state. You could take that view. But the court did not do that in all platforms. It examined factually whether Iran was responsible. And then even if Iran was responsible, it looked at this intent question. The thing that makes the intent question problematic for this incident is the Houthis say, we are attacking vessels that are Israeli or going to Israel. Now, the question that then arises is, 
But if that's what they're doing, but they're doing it indiscriminately such that it's affecting other vessels, Mm -hmm. is it then ipso facto automatically ruled out that it's an armed attack on the US, the UK, Bahrain, France, which is what the court was suggesting, that because it's not intended to come to your vessel, it's not an armed attack on you. Yes, That kind of sounds like problematic if you accept that in principle, an armed attack on a commercial vessel could be... An Can armed- I just add one thing? The, 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 the thing that really sort of I loved the most about the whole Houthi thing is that they expressly invoked their duty to prevent genocide mm. under Article 1 of the Convention as the reason why they're using force against the shipping in the Red Sea. So somehow we've done a full circle (laughs) back to genocide. And maybe the last thing from me, which I think is interesting about this episode, we don't really talk about it, but the necessity question in self-defense. So one might argue that, look, the Houthis fire these drones, the US, the UK, and other states are well able actually at sea to prevent these drones from hitting the ships. But it turns out that actually it's very, very costly to do that. Each of these drones is costing the Houthis and whoever it's giving it to them, I think maybe tens of thousands of dollars. But apparently each each missile that is being used against them is costing millions of dollars. And so even though it is possible to prevent these things at sea, a decision's obviously been made, let's do it at source. And it one hears that that might have some financial reasons behind it. How does all of that factor into necessity? Plus, there is, if you look at the statements, some of them talk about the degradation of the Houthis' capabilities. Some talk about deterring them, mm. which are sort of different ways of stopping the attack. One is to remove the capability, the other is to change the decision-making calculus. And I think that 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 is really interesting. So let's see, there's a Security Council meeting coming up that I think Russia asked for. There will be Article 51 letters coming in. And God knows, maybe there's an ICJ case on this. Actually, the final thing, I said it was the final, but this really is the final (laughs) because Marco raised this, this point. It also raises the question which all platforms raised but didn't answer, the whole question of accumulation of events. Do you regard every incident of firing of these drones as an armed attack? Over. You dealt with that one over, or can you say the whole incident of repeated firing constitutes as an accumulation of events an armed attack? And I assume the US-UK view is that it all constitutes an armed attack. Okay, Um, 2024 has already started with lots of incident and lots of challenging issues of of international law. I am sure that it won't take very long for us to hear from the International Court of Justice on the provisional measures order which we which we discussed and maybe we will have more to say on that in in future episodes. Special thanks to Mike Becker for joining us on this episode. Thanks for coming back and see you back soon and thanks of course to Philippa and to Marco. Thanks for tuning in. To stay up to date with what's happening in the world of international law and to listen to previous episodes of the podcast, visit egiltalk.org.